Just last Wednesday night, we were reading Luke's story of the birth of Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem. Luke doesn't spend any time moving us from that to Jesus' journey and life that would ultimately end in his death. As Luke writes his story of Jesus, let us be reminded that these are gospel accounts, which means that while they include historical data, they are not meant to be read so much as simply historically. Instead, really, they are meant to be read theologically. For everything that the gospel writers write, they do so as a theological point that they are making to the particular church in which they are writing, and the context that their church is facing. The question for Luke, and for us, of course, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And what difference does he make? With that in mind, let us hear the gospel as it is given to us in the second chapter of Luke verses 21 through 40. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel And the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now... You are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined For the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was of great age, having lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage. Then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. 
At that moment, she came and began to praise God and speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of of Jerusalem. And when they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Benjamin Weir was a Presbyterian missionary in Lebanon in 1984 when he was captured by the zealot Islamic fundamentalist group which became known as Hezbollah and thrown into prison for 18 months. It was for him, as it would be for anyone, a test of his faith. Every day, he said, I would wake up and remind myself that my name is Benjamin and I have been baptized. Therefore, I am a child of God. Every day, I have been baptized. I am a child of God. As the message in this morning's passage tells us about the child of Mary and Joseph, for male Jews at least, Jesus encountered his naming ceremony at his circumcision on the eighth day, and he is named Jesus, as the angel Gabriel said he should be. And then 40 days later, after Mary has been purified, they return to the temple according to the law. To be dedicated to God as the firstborn child is also required, and there they sacrificed two turtle doves. They couldn't afford a lamb or a sheep sacrifice. There, Jesus received his ordination orders, and it came not from his parents, but from these two older prophets who had been looking all of their lives for just this one that they now saw. When we were born, most of us were not ordained or preordained for what we would do or become in our lives. Hopefully that came later as we grew up, except for maybe Tiger Woods or someone like that who's father knew before they were even born what he wanted them to become. Hopefully, our parents waited for our own gifts, our own essence, our own personalities to take shape and would then nurture that gift along. But for Jesus, it is clear that he has been preordained. Simeon, this old-timer, who had been looking off into the distance for the Messiah to come one more time to redeem Israel before he died, saw in this infant child that very redemption and proclaimed it so. Somehow he knew it by the power of the Holy Spirit, the passage says. And for those of us who grew up thinking that the Holy Spirit came after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, This calls that into question. For Simeon had the power of the Holy Spirit when Jesus was eight days old, or 40 
eight days old. Interesting how Luke weaves that through this text. As soon as Simeon saw Jesus, he knew that this long-awaited one had come, and now he was ready to die. For that is all he asked for before he did. It's called a nunc dimittis, the Latin words for his song that he lifts up, that now that he has seen this one named Jesus, he could die in peace. For the Messiah had finally come, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to the people of Israel. What's amazing to me in this story is that as Mary and Joseph hear this from Simeon, it says that they're amazed at his words. And as I think back to the story, didn't Gabriel tell Mary of this? And as we think about the story of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, I mean, that was pretty amazing too. Certainly she had, if not knowledge, some intuition that Jesus was certainly special. Why were they amazed at his words? And it strikes me that, you know, I'm not sure parents really see in their children objectively all that we are, or they are. For that, it takes community. It takes others to be able to see in our children their very gifts, their essence that parents don't always see so clearly. We want them to be one particular thing, yet they may not be that. We see in them uh, a chip off the old block, yet being a part of that block may be the last thing they want to be a chip off. We see them as perfect. Well, sometimes. Or deeply flawed, sometimes. Yet the community around us, our teachers and other parents and our nurturers and our friends, help us to see our children and their gifts in a more objective way. So true for Mary and Joseph. It was Simeon who told them who their son was. And Anna, the old prophet who had spent all her time in the temple, having been married seven years before she was widowed, she was now in her mid-80s. Usually you got married around 14. Do the math. Every day she fasted and prayed for the Messiah to come. The text says that Mary and Joseph did everything according to the law of Moses. And then they returned to Galilee where the child grew in wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. And what Luke wants us to know is what Simon and Simeon and Anna saw in Jesus to declare such praise. Who is he? And they saw something for us to see. It's the question that haunts us all, whether of faith or of little faith. The Gospels tell us that for all of his life, up until his last three years, he was a working carpenter with no wealth or position. He wrote no books. He fought no military battles. His friends were mostly poor, fishermen, 
peasants like himself. When he left home, he started preaching, and his parents thought that he had literally lost his mind, and they tried to dissuade him. In the end, he was deserted by everyone, his friends and family, when he died a Roman death on a cross, hanging between two thieves and buried in a borrowed grave. Who was he? Then something happened. We say he was raised from the dead. It re-energized and inspired his followers to give all their lives to proclaim the good news of who he was. Because in his being raised, he broke the power of sin and death as they understood it. And that Jesus was no longer limited by the constraints of time and space, but now made present in every age and place. And we are enabled because of that to proclaim, just as Simeon and Anna did, that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. To claim that, we have to say that he was fully human Who was he? He was fully human. If Jesus was not human in the same way that we are human, it was all a sham, all an act that he was simply walking through. But the Gospels are clear that they want us to know that Jesus grieved as he did for his friend Lazarus, the same way we grieve. Jesus was angry as he was at the table of the money changers, the same way we are. Jesus was afraid the same way we are, and hoped the same way we do, and loved the same way we do. Jesus was human, fully human, the text says. It's easy as Christians for us to lose sight of that. We hold Jesus up on such a high pedestal. We think, in fact, that he's superhuman, apart from all of the human uh, ways and lives that we live in. Jesus was Jesus Christ. He didn't suffer all that we suffer. He was like Superman in some way. But did you know that the first heresy in the early church was a heresy that claimed that Jesus was not really human, but instead completely divine? It's called docetism. And the church said no to that. It is clear in the Gospels that they want us to understand that Jesus was human the way we are and suffered the way we do. Because if that's not the case, let's stand up and walk out. If that's not the case, that says that God has not gone to the full length to get to us. Calvin says that in that sense of Jesus being human, God had condescended himself to become like us. Jesus' humanity is the gift for us that God has done everything God can do, becoming like us so that in the end we can become like God. Jesus was human, born of a mother, 
Luke says he grew in wisdom and stature and knowledge just like we grow, dependent on his community in that growth. He was weary to the point of exhaustion. Why is that important? Because God, and this story is about God, wanted to find us again, or we to find God so that we may finally be healed of our mortal woundedness that needs more than anything else so desperately to know that God loves us no matter what. And this is the extraordinary claim that we make, that God's godness, God's presence, God's word became flesh incarnate in this human being named Jesus. That's what's in his name. And that said, the other must be said, too, that he was fully divine. The Savior of the world, Anna and Simeon confessed. The Savior, the Messiah, fully divine, the one whom they had waited for all their life. If he were only a man, no different than the rest of us, only a extraordinarily moral or ethical or virtuous man, maybe the greatest man who ever lived, then the story we claim as true about God and about us is also a sham. Anna and Simeon saw that day in the temple that this one named Jesus is also Messiah, Christ. We can only understand this by being in relationship with him, for it is a profession of faith. But this is the claim, you see, that he made about himself throughout the Gospels. Come unto me, he said. I am the way and the truth and the life, he said. He never claimed to be equal with God, but he did claim to be, in a way, the revelation of God in a way that no one else in the history of the world who was sane has ever claimed it. Not Socrates, not the Buddha, not Gandhi. James Stewart, the great mid-20th century uh, theologian and preacher from Scotland, as I said, uh, wrote this. Either Jesus' claim of his divinity is the infatuation of an absurd megalomaniac, or else it is really true. Either these sayings are the preposterous, incredible arrogance of a pathetic and pathological egotism, or else he had a right to say them. You have to choose one or the other. There is no third way. And the extraordinary thing is that on the lips of anyone else, these claims would sound completely preposterous, but on his lips they sound entirely fitting and apt and credible. So there you have it. Jesus Christ, his name, the son of Mary and Joseph, ordained 
early in his life as fully human and fully divine. What it means to us is that into our own humanity, we who have yielded to the devil's temptation to become like God, if you remember your story in Adam and Eve lore, we who have yielded to the temptation to become like God, God has yielded to love's temptation to become like us. And this makes all the difference. And I suggest that if we ever want to know what's in a name, who we really are as a child of God, then this is what makes the difference. And where we find in our world hope and courage and faith and joy. What's in your name?